Thank you, worship team. That was awesome. And yes, Lord, I do need you. I need you to preach this message. I need you to inspire us. We need to hear your voice this morning. And so I, I just pray, Lord, that you will come into this place and fulfill those needs that we have. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you guys optimists or pessimists? Optimists, pessimists, come on, be honest. Who's the pessimist? There's a couple pessimists here. Yeah, there always is, of course. The, the, the optimist, of course, says COVID-19 pandemic has a huge, been a huge blow. But look on the bright side, the exposed holes in our healthcare system. Yeah, Fortune magazine says that Bill Gates is an optimist because he says there's a silver lining to the massive Omicron surge breaking COVID case records around the world. It's actually the title of an article in the magazine. Uh, so yeah, there's the, there's the optimists among us. And certainly people are quite optimistic about uh, Omicron just, you know, going through the community and then hopefully shutting things down. Uh, but then there's the other people, right? They're good friends with Captain Edward A. Murphy, who says, you know, nothing is as easy as it looks. Everything takes longer than you think. Anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Of course, Murphy's Law. If anything simply cannot go wrong, it will anyways. (laughs) Left to themselves, things tend to go from bad to worse. And if anything seems to be going well, you're obviously overlooking something. And it is impossible to make anything foolproof because fools are so ingenious. (laughs) Of course, we might have heard uh, Robert Bateman who said, uh, best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Uh, So, optimists, what is it? Half full. Pessimists? Half empty, yes, of course. Are you a pessimist or not? You know, for me, I'm a realist, okay? So when people start arguing, it's half full, it's half empty, I just go, oh, give me that. Oh, it's very good. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> it is what it is. Quesera, uh, sera in Spanish, if you might, might, <laughs> I might add. But I'm fascinated by the Apostle Paul. See, the Apostle Paul, I think he was kind of pessimistic in many ways, particularly when it came to this new teaching about Jesus Christ. In fact, he was so pessimistic and so against this thing, he was, he was there at Stephen's uh, stoning going, yeah, 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 stone him. He doesn't deserve to live because of his views. Uh, pretty sad. He was so pessimistic about the way that he actually went around from city to city bringing Christians into jail. And, you know, sometimes I think we can get a glimpse into his pessimism from uh, Romans chapter 7. You know, when when he writes about how miserable a man he is, that he, he can't do what he wants to do and he's constantly doing what he doesn't want to do. And you just get this, this, a uh, guy who's just pulling his hairs out going, oh, it's just so frustrating to try to obey God. And, and I, th- I think that's the natural Paul. He's just naturally pessimistic. But you know what? The writer of the New Testament, that Paul, 
He's not pessimistic at all. In fact, he's kind of the opposite. And I believe that it happened at that moment when Jesus Christ revealed himself from heaven as he was on his way breathing murderous threats against the disciples and and the light shone from heaven and a voice came down and Jesus said to him, Paul, Paul, or Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I believe at that moment something snapped in Paul. Something changed in him. And he recognized the lordship of Christ. And he also recognized something powerful. And that is that God was directing his steps, even when he didn't want to be directed. Even when he was being completely against God, God still showed up and directed his steps. Um, And so, um, Paul kind kind of has this perspective shift that happens from that from before that point he was very legalistic he obeyed all the rules and laws of the old testament and it was very uh you know very confined to those legalistic things very physical but after that encounter with christ he became supernaturally minded He wasn't so concerned about all those rules and regulations. He knew that God's power was available to him in a powerful way. And that's what's going on with Paul in in Philippians chapter 1 uh, that we're going to have a look at this morning from verse 12 to verse 26 or so. We'll see how far we get. Uh, Paul explains this kind of supernatural bright side to his life. Um, He's got this very physical problem. It's, he's in prison, you know. He's chained to a, a guard. And, and so that's pretty physical. But he says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, that is his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. And you might say to yourself, and I often say, really, the gospel is being advanced by you going to jail? How can that be? And we've looked at some of these reasons before, but he gives three reasons. And we've looked at the second reason, but I'm going to state them all again. The first reason, he says, as a result of his imprisonment, that is, it has been clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. So he, he says... This is a testimony to everybody that I'm not a criminal. When you look at the story in Acts chapter 28, you realize that Paul is actually confined to a house that he's renting. And a a Roman centurion, or a guard, I I should say, is chained to him. So he can't go anywhere. Uh, and, And yet, he's been able to preach the gospel. It says in verse 30 of chapter 28, it says that for two whole years, boldly and without hindrance, Paul preached the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, who was he preaching to? Well, all of the palace guard who, who, would, who were taking shifts going through there. And all of the, the people who, would, who had heard about him and wanted to find out who is this guy. And they would show up and he would preach the gospel to them. And so because of two years of preaching and teaching, it became clear to everybody that Paul wasn't there as a criminal. He was there because he believed in Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead and the power of God to forgive sins. What an awesome testimony. And so then, secondly, he says, that the second reason that this is leading to the advance of the gospel is, uh, he says, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord 
and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. And I've already talked about this a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to belabor the point this morning. Basically, uh, people were emboldened by Paul's example. Uh, He was ready to go to prison for preaching the gospel, so surely they could preach the gospel as well. (coughs) The third example of how the gospel is being advanced is a silver lining in a very, very dark cloud. It's it's spelled out in verse 15 to 18. It's a little bit complicated, but bear with me as I read through it. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and for this I rejoice. (laughs) He's happy about this, that people are trying to malign him. I don't know exactly how that works, but that is pretty wild. Um, But So let's just back up and and pull this apart a little bit. So... uh, uh, some of the people were preaching Christ out of goodwill. They were doing so out of love and uh, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. So they love Paul, and I'm sure that they're the people that just earlier in verse 14 he's talking about, they're the ones who were encouraged to preach all the more because Paul was in prison. But then there's this other group that are somehow preaching the gospel somehow out of envy, out of rivalry, out of uh, this idea of uh, not out of of, uh, selfish ambition, actually, Uh, not sincerely, but to stir up trouble for me. Now, you got to wonder, you know, when I read this, I'm like, how does that work? Like, how can people preach out of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, not sincerely, uh, and stirring up trouble for Paul? Like, you know, like, either you're preaching the gospel and people are believing, like, well, how, what does that have to do with the Apostle Paul? And so I, I, I looked around in the commentaries, and the commentaries didn't really help a whole lot. They, they just said, yeah, like, oh, obviously people were preaching from bad motives and out of rivalry. And I'm like, but what, is that, what does that look like? You know? So I, I asked God about it, and I said, you know, like, what was this? And so... I think it went something like this, okay? This is just my imagination going wild. But I think it went something like this. Have you heard about this Paul fellow? <laughs> He's in prison because he keeps preaching about Jesus dying for people's sins. Can you imagine? And, and even when he's in preaching, he won't stop. What an idiot. Can you imagine people saying that? I can imagine that. And I think that this is actually what Paul is talking about. People are talking about him and his stand for Jesus and about what he's preaching, and they're calling him an idiot because they ended up him up in jail. Why doesn't he just renounce all this thing and he'll be free? You know? But no, he keeps pushing it. Um, and I think what happened was that people were saying this about Paul, but then people were like, really? He's in jail? Because of what he believes? I'd like to hear a little more about this. <laughs> do 
Don't you think that could be a possibility, what happened? Instead, when people are calling him an idiot and calling him foolish, people are wondering, but he's gone to jail for this. He might die for this. Maybe this is somewhat real. Uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit like what's been happening in our city this weekend, isn't it? It's, it's you know, the media and the government, they're mocking the freedom convoy, aren't they? They're just mocking it. They're saying this is ridiculous. Uh, most classically, our prime minister. What you remember what he said? This small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa, who are holding unacceptable views that they are expressing, do not read. That represents the views of Canadians. And he's just dismissing this this group of Canadians as if ah, these are just pests. <laughs> they don't know anything. They, he's basically saying they're a bunch of, uh, you know, idiots, basically. He didn't actually say that. Um, but in the middle of this ridicule, and I, and I watch the news, the, the news has the same kind of tenor. Like all the experts are talking about this, like all oh, these foolish people. Um, but in the middle of this ridicule, some people are going like, what is with these truckers and what is with these people? They're actually willing to lose their jobs so that they don't have to be vaccinated? Like, what is the big deal? And some people are actually looking into what this is all about and trying to figure out, like, should I not be vaccinated? And all that kind of stuff. And, and believe me, I'm not trying to make a statement here, okay? I'm not. I'm really not trying to make a statement. What I'm just pointing out is that sometimes the ridicule backfires, Right? And I think that's what was happening to the Apostle Paul. The ridicule that was happening actually backfired. And what do they say um, about um, publicity? There's no such thing as bad publicity, right? It's always good to be talked about. I think that's why President Trump got in, don't you think? It's because he was always at the top of the publicity stuff. He was. People were always like, look what he did now, you know, all the time. And so... He was always right up front, and people voted him in. Um, but it's really amazing that Paul turns around and he says, I'm glad that all these people are ridiculing me. I'm glad that these people are, are talking about this. I'm, I'm glad for the bad publicity. Because Christ is being preached. Um, so it shows that even when people were mocking and ridiculing and trying to make Paul's imprisonment worse, trying to get him set up so that he'd, he'd get killed, uh, Paul's actually going, hey, thanks guys. <laughs> this is great. Uh, you see, Paul was, deliberate, was rejoicing that people deliberately were trying to make things worse for him. And it shows the importance that Paul put on the gospel. He didn't care about his own life. He just cared about the fact that Jesus Christ was being preached. And even more so, it shows that Paul lived what he preached in Romans. Remember what he preached in Romans? Romans 8, verse 28. This is a a very interesting passage. It says, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Paul realized that even his imprisonment, his inability to go out and preach to masses and masses of people, God was going to use somehow. And, and, and believe me, God used it in a way that Paul never, ever suspected. 
Paul was concerned that he wasn't preaching to hundreds and hundreds of people. But guess what? While in prison, Paul wrote letters to churches that have been preached to millions, dare I say billions of people. They're in the Bible. (laughs) And so he actually got to preach to billions of people long after he lived because of his confinement in jail. And so Paul truly believed this. He believed that whatever God, and believe me, he didn't never, never once does he refer to his writing of the New Testament as something powerful that God did while he was, it never occurred to him as far as I can tell. He never considered that God was going to use these messages for generations and thousands of years. He was more looking at the right here, right now. What is going on? What is God doing right here, right now in my situation? Um, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He had kind of an attitude a lot like Joseph. Remember Joseph? Joseph was this guy who, was, you know, talk, who had these dreams of, of being uh, sort of the leader and peop, other people bowing down to him. His brothers were ticked off because he was the favorite with his father. And so what did they do? They beat him up, threw him in a pit. They were going to kill him. Then one of the brothers says, no, 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 let's not kill him. Let's sell him to, as a slave. Oh, yeah, so much better. So they sell him as a, a slave. to, And then he goes to Egypt. He gets bought by somebody. He has to serve Potiphar. And, uh, and then Potiphar's wife, uh, you know, makes a pass at him. And it's interesting his response to Potiphar's wife. He says, how can I sin against God? Well, so far God hasn't done a whole lot for Joseph, has he? I mean, he got removed from his country, got, ends up in this other country as a slave, and then, of course, he ends up in jail for, not, for doing what's right, right? And even there, he doesn't give up on God. He doesn't give up on God. And eventually... In chapter 45, when his brothers finally show up and he finally reveals to his brothers who he is, they're the ones who sold him into slavery. They're the ones who meant to destroy his life. And this is what he says. It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. What? Joseph has a big picture view of God. And he says, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth to save the lives, your lives by great deliverance. Whoa, that's a different idea. And then he goes on. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Whoa. Now, of course, Joseph is saying these things after the fact. I'm not sure when Joseph was in the dungeon, in the prison, whether he was saying, hey, you know, like, uh, God sent me here for a great reason. I'm, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> but he does seem to have an indomitable spirit. And this is the attitude that Paul has now that he's been enlightened. Now that he's met Jesus personally, he's been changed from this pessimistic outlook to this powerful outlook that says everything God is doing Everything that's happening in my life, even if it seems absolutely crazy and absolutely horrid, God's in control. And God's going to use it. 
some way for his glory. Now, I don't, say, I don't want to say it's easy to live with this changed perspective. I know some of you have had losses recently. Loved ones have passed away. Some of you are dealing with cancer, and it's horror. Some of you have, have, uh, have, are dealing with marital breakup and all of those troubles. Uh, some of you have gone through such horrible difficulties, I can't even imagine it. Um, some who have been abused by family members in many different ways. And I can't imagine those, those horrors that you've gone through. But this one thing I know, that God is God, and he, allow, he doesn't bring us through these things. He allows these things in our life for purposes unbeknownst to us. I think of Job. I never found out the purpose why God was destroying his life. But there was a purpose unbeknownst to him. And God shared it with us, thankfully. Um, there are those of you who have dark clouds in your life, I can only imagine. But I want you to know that because God is a good God, and God is sovereign, there is a silver lining to that cloud. I don't know what it is. I had some very dark times in my life, but there was a silver lining to those dark times. So God, two things to keep in mind. God is good no matter what trial we're going through. Uh, and if, two, if you can get a glimpse of the bigger picture of what God is doing, uh, it's possible for you to have joy even in the middle of your suffering. And I remember one time when I was suffering in my life and an elder came along and said, oh, God's going to use this for good. And I was just like, you're crazy. You know? I just couldn't believe that. But I, I realized that God did use it for good in my life. And it's awesome that God cares about us enough to give us difficulties. Uh, so in the natural, you might be a pessimist. Maybe you're a realist like me. But I believe that when we truly understand who God is, then in Christ we become optimists because we understand who that God is involved in all this, and he's got a plan. And we don't know what it is, but he's got a plan. And it makes us into optimists. Um, and naturally, I am not an optimist. I am very much a realist. And uh, I don't see the silver lining, and I don't see the negative part. I just go, you know, just charging ahead into what I think is, is good. That's, that really is me. Um, but I think that when we are... Aware of who God is, we become optimists. And I think some of the greatest people who, who displayed this for everybody to see have been the martyrs down through the centuries. Especially the ones who bravely faced death and carried on with unbelievable courage, inhuman courage. One of those people is actually a Canadian, a, a man I completely admire. It, it was way back uh, when Canada was called New France. And he, he came to Canada with the Society of Jesus to bring the gospel to the Huron nation. And he 
he translated, or, or he made a, a, a book of translation, so like basically a dictionary, a French Huronian dictionary uh, that was very accurate and was used by his fellow missionaries to reach the Huron nation. But one day while he was uh, preaching and teaching in a, a Huron uh, village, the, a, a, a large contingent, uh, basically an army from the Iroquois nation, uh, decimated the village, set it on fire, and then took him, th- this, this man, maybe you've heard this story, it's, uh, where's his name again? Oh, <laughs> I always have trouble with his name. Uh, Jean uh, de Berif. Um, and, and he, and sorry for all you Francophones who, if I butchered his name, I'm sorry. He is a hero of mine, but I can't pronounce his name. <laughs> um, but he and a colleague were tortured for an entire day. And I read the account. It's four pages long. It's from eyewitnesses who watched him go through this torture. And I cannot bring myself to tell you one piece of how they tortured him because it was so awful. It was so barbarian beyond belief. And so I don't want to go through all the details of this horrible death that they made him endure. But what I want to point out is the way he endured it. He endured it with absolute courage. And every time they did another round of horrible torture to him, he just kept preaching the love of Jesus Christ for them. He kept praying for them that they would find faith in Christ. He kept uh, discussing how he would have... uh, uh, how um, if they would just follow Christ, they would have great rewards in heaven. So much so that the Iroquois taunted him by saying, you're going to have great rewards in heaven, so you should thank us for doing all this. And then another round of torture, uh, keeping him alive. And at the very end, they finally dug out his heart out of his chest, boiled it and ate it, and drank his blood because they had never seen anyone endure with absolute uh, confidence the torture that they had just put him through. They, they couldn't believe his courage. They couldn't believe what they saw. And so they wanted part of that. And that's why they tore out his heart and ate it. I mean, that part, I know it's gruesome. But it's the least gruesome of the whole story. Uh, it was, it's just an awful story. But when I think of these incredible men who saw the greater picture and saw that their lives, uh, even as martyrs, would propel the church forward and were willing to give up their lives and continue proclaiming the gospel until they, they, they did a, a torture on him that, that disallowed, disenabled him to preach the gospel, actually. Yeah, I don't want to describe it all. But he was amazingly stoic in this. And I have often wonders wondered about all these martyrs in the past. And I've often wondered, you know, like, what would happen to me? What would I do? How many of you have ever thought, you know, would, would I stand the challenge if I was tortured for my faith? How, how many of you? 
just a few of you. I'm really surprised. I've had this thought since I've been a, a teenager. I've often wondered, how, how would I stack up? And you know, at, wanting to be a missionary and actually considering doing work in, in Africa uh, when I retire, these thoughts are now coming back to me, you know? And, and I wonder, like, how would I stack up when they point the gun at my head and say, renounce Christ or I'm going to blow your brains out or renounce Christ or, and you're going to, or you're going to be hung next week in the central square, which is what they did in a lot of parts of northern Africa. Uh, what would I do? What would I do if, if uh, uh, some of these radical Islamic groups got a hold of a missionary. And, and I know missionaries that have been killed recently for their faith. I, I, I listened to a, a wife of a missionary whose husband was murdered uh, share about what had happened. And uh, I, I often just wonder, well, what would I do? Would I, would, I, would I make it? And so some of you have had those thoughts. And you know what? That's what the next passage, the next few verses in Philippians is all about. It's Paul wondering that very question about himself. But for him, it's not an academic question. He's not in a seminary somewhere going, I wonder how I'd make out if, if they wanted to crucify me. You know, like, would I stand up to that? Would it, how would I? No, it's not academic for him at all. He, he's in jail. He's not in jail because he was tried and sent to jail as a punishment. No, 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 no. They didn't do jail like that back then. There, there was no jail sentence. That wasn't the punishment. The punishment was either flogging or slavery or, you know, out on the, on the, the you know, running the oars. If you ever watched Ben-Hur, you know about that. Uh, or death in the stadium. Or acquittal. These are the only options there were. Jail time wasn't the punishment. So Paul is sitting in jail. He's contemplating what is going to happen. Am I going to be sent to jail? Or I'm I'm sorry, am I going to be uh, beaten within an inch of my life? Am I going to be killed? Am I going to be sent to the Colosseum and made a spectacle of while I die? Or am I going to become a slave? What, What is going to happen to me? I don't know. And these are some of the things that he says. <clears throat> I rejoice. Yes, I continue to rejoice. Hold it a sec. Paul's contemplating his martyrdom, <laughs> and this is how he starts. I rejoice. Woohoo! I'm so excited. Uh, I have this opportunity to be martyred for. What? Who are you, Paul? Like, what? Paul is the changed man who met Jesus Christ and has a completely different view of reality than we do. He's got a supernatural view, and so he's like, hey, this is great. I rejoice, and I will continue to rejoice. You know, many times Paul talks about this great privilege of suffering for Christ's sake. I mean, when Paul was put in prison in Philippi, right? Uh, and 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 flogged, so he was whipped, and then he was put in prison. What did he do? Does anyone remember what he, he Silas is with him? What did he do? Come on, you know this. What did he do in prison with Silas? 
He sang. Thank you. One of the worship teams shouting out. He sang. Yeah, he sang when he was in prison. Can you imagine? Yahoo! We just got whipped and beaten, and now we're in prison. We're singing. Whoa. Paul takes Jesus' words quite literally and quite seriously. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Paul's going, Woohoo! I've got the kingdom of heaven! I'm getting persecuted! Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. <laughs> wow. Clearly, Paul took the start, though. And even though he was in jail waiting for trial, he was rejoicing. In fact, he really does take persecution as a blessing. If you look down in, in verse uh, 29, Paul points out to the Philippians. He says to them, you know, that, that if they're persecuted, that's a great blessing. Look, look what he says. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Hey, guys, you've been granted this great blessing of suffering. Wow. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I have, and now see that I have. <laughs> Paul has a supernatural outlook on life. This is not physical at all. This is unbelievable. Paul is truly excited and happy to be persecuted, and even rejoices with the other people who are being persecuted and said, Ha! Huh, what a blessing you have. You're being persecuted too. Isn't this awesome? I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> but you know what? I'm telling you. Philippians is, this book of Philippians that where Paul is writing, it is the most joyful book in the entire Bible. It really is. There's 104 verses. And in 16 times, Paul mentions in those 104 verses, 16 times he mentions joy or joyfulness. Isn't that crazy? He's just like super pumped. Uh, and so he... he uh, he writes from a dingy Roman prison, a place that would typically be associated with misery and, and, and what most people would assume is the opposite of joy. And yet he's surrounded by every conceivable obstacle to joy. Why does he seem so happy? Well, he actually explains it in these verses. He says, For I know that though through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. <laughs> so there's a bunch of reasons for his joy. The first one is he's excited because people are praying for him. And he says, you're praying for me. And this word, you know, this word that says it will happen, turn out for my deliverance, the word in the Greek is actually my salvation. Uh, so it's a little bit unclear whether he's talking about his deliverance from jail, and, and I think he is, but he's also got this idea that it's his deliverance from torture, from this whole realm of the physical into the supernatural. And so there's this idea that uh, it's going to work out. Their prayers are going to be answered, and he will 
have confidence in this time. Secondly, he's excited because of God's uh, provision. You know, when you go through difficult times, and when I've gone through difficult times, I've been so excited and thankful for God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Because it changes who I am without me working hard at it. You know, I said earlier that it's tough to have this new perspective. But actually, it's a gift. And it's not that tough. When we walk in Christ, He gives us His nature automatically. And we get this gift of the Spirit of Christ. Which is the only reason that I have any hope that if someone holds a gun to my head and says, repent or I'm going to blow your brains out, that that's the only way I could possibly imagine that I would get through that uh, is the Spirit of Christ. Because uh, no, there's no way I would be able to, you know, hold on to my dignity at that moment. There's just no way. Jesus showed the way, didn't he? As he went to the cross, he said, hey, don't cry for me, cry for yourselves. As he went to the cross, he went like a sheep to his shearers that is dumb. He went freely. Deliverance. uh, Oh, I already talked about that. He's expecting the Spirit of God also to give him the ability not to act shamefully should he be condemned, but to act courageously. One of the things a lot of people miss is, is this idea that the Roman... I already talked about that too. Never mind. <laughs> uh, so he's pointing out a different set of parameters for his life. And it really comes to a crunch in verse 21. When he says, and these are his famous words, For, to me, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. What an awesome statement. This is an otherworldly sense of understanding. He understands that while he's here in this life, he's going to serve Christ. He's going to do everything for Christ. Christ is his all in all. But if he dies, whoo, it's a promotion. It's a gain. It's a one-up. <laughs> uh, for those who don't have Christ, they believe that what's on, on this earth is, is as good as it gets. You know, whether it's uh, fame or fortune or love or whatever they live for, that's all there is. But for us who believe, we know that to die is gain. Death isn't the end. Most people think that death is the end, that's it. There's, you know, the end of relationships, the end of life, the end of everything. But for us, we don't know. No, it's promotion day. We go to be with God in glory. We get a better life, uh, a life where where the streets are paved with gold. In other words, there's no, lo- no lack of money. A life of no lack of joy and happiness and bliss. We get a better home. Jesus promised that he was building mansions for us up, up in glory. And, and he's gone to prepare a place for us. Well, he's taken them a couple thousand years. It's probably a pretty impressive place since he made this world in six days. Uh, we, we get a glorified body. It's better to be with Christ because... Our bodies won't get sick. COVID won't be in heaven. Yay! (laughs) Praise God. Uh, It's resurrected body. Better nature. The Bible is very clear. We won't be subject to sin anymore. Oh, I am waiting for that day, my brothers and sisters. Oh, I hate that old man inside of me. Drives me crazy. Constantly wanting me to sin. 
I, there won't even be temptation in heaven. Praise God. <clears throat> and so in conclusion, he says this. If I'm going to go on living in the body, this will, be me, this will mean fruitful labor, labor for me. In other words, if Paul continues on living, he's going to continue on serving the church of Jesus Christ. And he says, that's a big plus. But what should I choose? He says, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Jesus, which is five, is way better. You know, just this week, someone says, I, I want to go home. I want to be with Jesus. Someone said that to me absolute, with absolute sincerity to my face. Just said, I want to go to be with Jesus. And I totally believe him. I totally get it. Uh, you know, there's a time when we just want to go to heaven. When we realize that there's nothing left here for me. I want to go to be with Jesus. Um, but Paul goes on. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, you may, and your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. So here you can see that Paul is kind of flip-flopping all over the place. He's contemplating his death. He gets a little emotional, gets a little into it. But ultimately he says, you know what? I think God wants me to stay here so I can be of use to you. Now, this I, I, I was planning on this morning to, at this point in the message to go into um, talking about do not resuscitate orders and assisted suicide because these are hot topics today and I believe this passage talks about it. But I'm already 11 minutes over time. And so uh, I'm going to leave this for next week, okay? And so uh, I don't know if I'm going to be, you know... Uh, tarred and feathered after next week's message <laughs> but it's going to be like you know one of those subjects where whoo there's a lot of difference of opinion uh, but I, I i really feel like pe- people when when people have loved ones that are getting near the end of life they come to me and ask me really tough questions and as a pastor, I need to have an answer for them, and I give them my answers as best I can. So please give me some grace next week. I'm going to give you the answers as best I can <laughs> from my outlook. And you might disagree with me, or you might totally agree. I don't really, it doesn't really matter. I, I do care, but it doesn't matter a whole lot. I'm just giving these as someone who has studied the subject a lot, because I get asked it a lot, and who just feels like we, we, we all need to... Cr- build our own uh, theology of end of life care and and stuff because guess what we all have parents that get old we all know people that are getting on in years and at some point we're going to be asked that question do you want us to resuscitate this loved one of yours and so we we need to know what does the bible say about that so next week a little teaser for next week um and it'll be fun. Hopefully I won't get stoned. <laughs> well, let's pray. Father, we come before you today and we ask that we would be like Paul. That we would stand up for you no matter what. That we would have courage in the middle of being uh, persecuted. Lord, help us to have courage and boldness even when people don't want to hear what we have to say. Even when they, when they mock us. 
Lord, we pray that we will be bold. Lord, help us to know the difference between being mocked for being uh, obnoxious and being mocked for, for caring. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to care and love people and share the gospel out of love and compassion for people. And, Lord, if we get mocked, uh, say la vie. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.